beings who are suffering due to deep water horizon spill and for a swift resolution. In memory of my mother, Mo Myra Mora Kolban, healing for, for Sue Jennifer, daughter of Margaret, and Nathan Sofer. So we keep those people in mind and you can also um, add any other beings that come to your mind right now while we're doing the chanting. So we did dedication and uh, one of the um, what we do here is kind of ritual and there's a particular purpose of ritual. Ritual is to encapsulate in actions and metaphors and gestures and symbols to encapsulate particular qualities of heart and meaning. Yeah? So obviously Buddha, wise, prajna, wisdom, these elements, flowers, purity, candles, illumination, and then offering our bodies, we bow, offering our voices, we chant. So it's a sense of all these is like an acting out a particular set of metaphors and analogies, you know. And so the, the sense of offering here is a very important feature of how we practice and, and why we practice and what supports our practice. When you hear the word offering, really, you know, because it, it's... It helps to counteract the tendency to try and get something out of it. <laughs> I mean, it's not that you don't get results, but if we approach practice with, without a balance, you know, if it's too much like, how am I getting? There's a certain tension and frustration builds up. Yeah? That's what you get. <laughs> but if you approach it from an offering, there's a quality of love, generosity, release, lightness that comes out of that. And so particularly this particular gesture of offering is a very important one to, to put up high, you know, to really lift it up. Because you know? sometimes you don't feel you've got anything to offer. But you always have something to offer, which is your attention, your awareness, your intentions, you know, that you offer that. That's, that's the root, that's the main thing. The rest of it is just extras, <laughs> what we can do. So here the offering actually is a very simple, you just light some candles. And we're offering water. And water is such a pure, such a common thing, such an ordinary thing, yet probably the most valuable thing on the planet. It's so common, so ordinary. It's like your own mind, your own awareness is so common, ordinary, it's the most precious thing. And the three is because we offer to Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. Buddha, the awakened one, Dhamma, teaching, Sangha. The, the body of practitioners. And so water is also a beautiful element because it, it captures everything in resonance. You know, it resonates, it ripples. So when we pour the water in a way, the sense of pouring it is a feeling of flowing out from the heart. Uh, it's beautiful, very common medium, you know, that actually is able to capture resonance. And in the end of the 
evening we pour the water into this and it's like this then we gather all all the actions all the skillful actions we've done in the day we just gather it all here and then we just spread it you know like wherever whoever <laughs> whatever you know just sharing of merit so this particular piece of ritual is a is a, a nice thing to keep in touch with so for these these dedication, these specific things, anything you want, you know, you just get a sense of my, my practice today have been, you know, for the welfare or with that in mind. Mm-hmm. That gives you gives your practice always some sense of purpose to it. Yo so bhagava arahang sama sambodo svakato yena bhagavata dhammo so patipanaya sabhagavato Savaka Sango Tamayang Bhagavan Tang Sadamang Sasangang Imehi Sakarehi Atarahang Aropitehi Abhipochayama Sadhana Bhante Bhagava Sachira Parini Bhutopi Pachima Chanata Nukampamanasa Ime Sakaredu Gatapana Karabhote 
Perhaps to say the obvious, obvious things. <laughs> keep kind of widening the lens back to the big picture, engrossed in our thoughts and feelings and energies, comings and goings in the day. And you sometimes it's quite uh, sort of bemusing or baffling or over, overwhelming even sense of all the sort of thoughts and impressions and feelings that come up. So, the, so just trying to create enough space and enough uh, constancy and steadiness to allow you know, things to evaporate, to steam off, to steady energies to set themselves down. As at least as our, as our starting place, getting to the starting place there is a starting place uh, and really remembering of course that this aim of this is always the understanding how uh, the, the quality of suffering 
in any given situation a dukkha which can be experienced as a kind of pressure something pushing us pressing on us weighing on us dragging us throwing us around this sense of being impotent and pressed in upon pressure or loss that is not enough oh, kind of empty and not a transcendent way in a, but a vacuous way uh, so help give me something you know so these like one says kind of overwhelmed the other is almost underwhelmed the way is that this quality of dukkha is experienced whatever the topics that it crystallizes around and so in that we're thrown off balance aren't we it's almost say that's the fundamental meaning of the word do bad bad badly set badly made supposed to be represents something like a wheel on an axle that's not properly fitting so it's throwing out a kilter so suffering is really a very uh, crude um, translation of that it's this feeling of out of balance out of sorts can of course be extremely anguishing can be just a grumpy feeling or it can be just not feeling very grounded so recognizing this whatever the topics of the mind come up then the you know when it's about whatever it's about we kind of get that that theme that quality in it that's that's the bit for liberation that's what you want to boil things down to for liberation you know to release the mind if you can release the mind then in that quality of release the mind gathers its full potential and then we can get back to topics as and as and when what seems relevant what seems useful uh, you can kind of address items from from the uh, more spacious and clear and less uh, fragmented mindset dukkha then the origin of that is we are there's this quality of um, thirst or kind of reflex of pathology of trying to take something in hold something in sense contact trying to find ourselves in that and get an agreeable setup of um, touch taste sight thought physical feelings mental feelings you know this uh, trying to get that set up so it will be comfortable we keep taking this in it's rather like drinking salt water in that yeah when you drink the salt water is a moment where it feels like you're quenching your thirst but then you feel like you could do with another hit because it doesn't really do it and another very powerful force is the quality of trying to be something it means that we are in fact you know, a kind of dynamic flowing uh, experience is what we're having and yet there's that wish to be solid to kind of hold it into a particular shape steady this is what I am yeah so that crystallizes consolates around mind states around status around positions self-measurement self-judgment measuring oneself measuring others this is what I am this is what I am and it's always not what I am it's what's happening <laughs> or one way of looking at what's happening 
right now. <laughs> it's what's becoming called becoming, but it's not actually being. Uh, and uh, as much as one uh, you know, want to become something, and that movement towards becoming complete or successful or happy or enlightened or whatever it is, following that energy takes you on to further becoming. You know, witness it, watch it. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it can only take you so far on that road before you know, you, you, you've got to wake up from it. And in fact, meditation is called the most skillful becoming. We, we do train and uh, attune our, our energies to trying to stabilize and make this stream of awareness clear, pure, bright, steady, strong. We're really doing that so that, you know, it, it, uh, over a period of time you begin to see, you know, good results. You become a better person. But then the more clear you get about that, you realize you haven't become a better person. It's just there are better mind states arising. <laughs> or more useful mind states or more happy mind states. And whose they are doesn't really matter anymore. So that's the sense of, uh, you know, in a way practices like that offering. You know, you get good results and just let them be there. You offer them. Let them pass, you know. also trying to not become anything, which is the opposite. We're uh, trying to uh, get out of it all. Get out of this flow of mindsets, mind states. Switch it all off. So, kind of one, it leads to a certain uh, annihilationism. You know, we try to close down and not experience as not experience ourselves. Particularly when the experience is rather uncomfortable and doesn't fit and isn't very uh, attractive. Then there's that compulsion to want to get away from it, close it down. The more you close it down, the bigger it gets. (laughs) So with the good stuff, the more you hang on to the good stuff, the smaller it gets. The more you try and push away the bad stuff, the bigger it gets. (laughs) So we're learning this. uh, You've got to learn the hard way because so we can perhaps get this idea as as a tip. But then you've really got to do the the work of handling that reflex, which is very deep in us. This reflex of trying to have, trying to be, trying to stop being. I wish I could stop being a silly person. My silly personality, my feeble sense of humor, pathetic amount of understanding. So I stop being that, and instead I'd be something else. You know. But when so what we begin to 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 contemplate in that is, you know, what does that attitude do? What does that feel like? Is that beautiful? Is that compassionate? Is it wise? Is it clear? No, it's generally frightened, insecure needy, uh, irritable, lacking compassion, intolerant. <laughs> you know, so we start to look at the energies that go into becoming. Okay, you know, we know in a way when the, this, our 
conditioned awareness, our consciousness is is born in becoming. It's what it does. It continually flows on from this to that. But what we can do is at least keep feeding in the right kind of themes that that becoming that we become, the mind states that keep occurring, start to become more beautiful. Yeah. And the less self there is in it, the less me there is in it, the less uh, self-judgment, self-measurement there is in it, the more beautiful it gets. doesn't mean we can't measure it, but we stop measuring it as self. Yeah? So it's not like a complete uh, uh, nonchalance about mind states, but but not measuring them as oneself with all that hyper-attention that goes into things that we see in that way. You know, when what's it like when you see my anxiety probably is the same as your anxiety. It's not a copyright on it. I can't say, hey, my anxiety is better than yours or worse than yours. It go, you know, and what I'm anxious about, you probably think, ah, oh, that's not a problem. And what you're anxious about, I'd think, oh, come on, grow up. <laughs> the topics you might disagree with are not bearing, have, this, have, uh, have the same, but the general feeling of it. So instead of measuring itself, we measure anxiety is like this. There's a huge amount of it. The need to be secure, the need to know the future, need to have the answers. You realize we're in a stream that's flowing on. We don't know the answers, we don't know the future. And this touches one of the most powerful nerves in our being, the nerve of insecurity. What's it going to be like? How will this work? What will the future be? What will the country be like? What will the planet be like? What will my body be like? What will, you know? You know, honestly, we don't know. But what we can do is keep putting in the right kind of intentions and energies then as an offering, really, and look at the, the ones that either we get depressed or despairing or couldn't care less or it doesn't matter or I'm, I'm useless anyway. You keep putting that aside. What does it taste like? You know, you start to taste the quality of intentions, and you just want to keep cultivating the ones you that you can look at and think this is this is good. You know, where it goes, I don't know, but I can trust it in the present moment. I can trust loving kindness. I can trust patience. I can trust generosity. I can trust purity, virtue. You know. Things that you know, you start to get this sense. This is what I want to do. Whatever I'm doing, whether it's walking the dog, mowing the lawn, driving the car, I can practice. I can do that with a mind bent on let my let me be uh, patient, uh, generous, kind, resolute. Whatever you know, you you get an overview of what your life is about as a spiritual path. Is really the spiritual practices, spiritual paths are just like the bigger picture. Everything fits inside it. Spirituality is not a kind of a, a little subsection of life. <laughs> you know, a half an hour a week or sitting in the morning. That's not Spirituality is the thing that the rest of your life fits inside. 
it means I can be doing this with a sense of of uh, compassion. I can do my job with a sense of, well, today I'm not going to lose my temper at anyone. I'll be more patient. You know? So that's spirituality. It's it's a thing that, that's bigger than all your actions and thoughts. So you've got to get that perspective on it, really, because it isn't something, you know, a little thing you've got to carve out somewhere where all the rest of that not messy stuff goes away. Somewhere in there, in that jungle of the mind, is a little crystal gem of, of spiritual truth. No, the spiritual truth is the, is the big picture which all your stuff is rolling around inside. <laughs> Look at it like that. But it's often that big chip, we don't go to that big picture. We get mesmerized by events, by feelings, by emotions, by thoughts, by the actions of others, crisis of the moment. We get kind of caught in it and we lose our ability to really relate to that. Uh, spirituality is a relational experience. It's not apart from that. It's a relationship of wisdom and compassion. And if, if that is fulfilled, as that is fulfilled, as that is carried out, what happens through that process is that the fearfulness, the irritation, the greediness starts to just fade out because you haven't not put any energy into it anymore. So then, amazingly enough, your mind can be quite bright, open, and peaceful, even in situations that are not of that nature because you're not picking it up. You're not picking up the fear, the irritation, the argumentativeness, or whatever it is. You know, you're not not doing that anymore. This is a kind of, you know, what, what, what can be done. So instead of being in the world, the world is in you. You're, 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 round, you're getting around it. You're coming, getting around that. So the cessation of this uh, suffering this doesn't mean that everything becomes okay physically uh, in, in, in what's happening around you. It's definitely a sad and disappointing, frustrating and so forth, but you're not kind of engendering that in yourself because there's that, you're not searching for something in the world, in phenomena something they can't really provide anyway. But it doesn't mean, you know, ignoring, but instead of asking, you know, thoughts, feelings, people, events to be sensible and harmonious, <laughs> which would certainly be nice if they would, you say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try and do this, the harmonious bit. <laughs> you know, I'll take that on. That'll be my offering. Getting, sometimes it means getting very wide, very big around conflict. 
So I live in a, a community and uh, Sangha life is generally, uh, in my experience, almost always conflict. Doesn't mean that's all it is, but there's always some degree of conflict going on in it. Because why? Because of people, because of karma, because people have different perceptions. People have different things they're working out. People get disappointed. People get frustrated. People, why doesn't he put his shoes here? You know, why doesn't he always, why does he have to not, why can't he wash the towels on time? Why does he have to flush the loo at two in the morning? You know, it's these things are the nitty gritty of Sangha life. <laughs> and then you're living in a kind of multicultural community as I do, some of the people just don't even have the same language. You know, you've got, Czechs and Poles and Spanish and jokes don't transfer very well. <laughs> and people have different outlooks on what seems important. You know, some people it's important to have the really precise form, sitting, really exact, clear. This is what Buddhism is, it's being clear, precise. Other people, no, Buddhism is about being warm, friendly. You know, don't get too edgy about things being precise and clear. Other people feel, no, no, this, this kind of warm, fluffy stuff, it all falls apart. Whatever, it's precise and clear. You know, so you get these different persuasions and then in between the two people start you know, feeling uncomfortable with each other and the arguments start. You know. and, you go, yeah, and you go, which, and they say, Ajahn, what do you think? And you go, oh. um, everybody's right. <laughs> <laughs> Because everybody is right, that's the problem. <laughs> From their position, they're right. <laughs> but there's more, always more than one right. <laughs> so, yeah. Remember this uh, Chinese master, Hua, who had a monastery in Northern California. He had a big... Uh, interfaith gathering there at this monastery and in bed with those uh, you know, Buddhists and Muslims and then there were Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and Catholics and Orthodox and different schools of this, that and the other and they're all getting together and it's kind of sense that everybody's going to be you know, ecumenical and harmonious and nobody's going to say any kind of anything too too fundamentalist you know, let's be spacious about this or so Everybody gives them, give their talk about their particular faith and how they mean well for all beings. And we'd be, we believe in peace. Everybody believes in peace. <laughs> peace for welfare for all beings. So he said, okay. At the end of it, he says, right, listen to all these talks. They want to find out who's the best religion. <laughs> Let's get down to it, decide whose is the best. <laughs> looks back. And he stands and he points his finger and says, well, yours is the best, otherwise you wouldn't be following it, would you? <laughs> so every individual is, on the, is the best. <laughs> so how do we manage that? You know, every opinion is right. Because we say, yeah, it's right, but that's all it is. <laughs> it's right for you, but that's all it is. Yeah. And we recognize that something has to be something bigger than any opinion or viewpoint. Mm. Sometimes this kind of is frustrating for people. Like what, what's the bit? 
What's the what's the what's the bit? You know. So you can come up with peace, justice, truth, compassion, but you know, what's the real bit? The thing. What's it? In various ways, this question comes up. Say, you know, Buddha would generally be silent. Can't say it. But it's the bit where all the other bits fit and stop fighting with each other. (laughs) It's the bit where the mind understands a view and an opinion as that which has arisen, a certain validity. If adhered to, it causes conflict with people of another view. Therefore, one sees the attractiveness of it because views give us a certain sense of clarity. We're able to kind of gather ourselves around this. But then it it means there's a danger of it because we feel that's all there is. And then, you know, then there's conflict with people of other views. Rightly said, the Buddha says, I understand all the views, understanding their conditioned relative truth understanding their attraction and their danger the Buddha is released from these doesn't mean he doesn't know them but he's not in them not adhered to them so that uh, cessation of pressure holding on is also a cessation of standpoints fixed views opinions anything we can start to gather ourselves around and feel solid around and feel uh, you know self around releasing of that cessation of that dukkha and it's not that the, it's not that this cessation is a nothing it's just a not something that you could ever really uh, define or get but you kind of open into and it's where you're your thoughts and your tension start to dissolve. The Buddha called it Nibbana, the blowing out, the non-position, the non-binding. He said, this is the one you can't get beyond and you can't get it, but you can empty into it. Mm. Now, the various... uh, and of Buddha talked a lot about the obstacles to this saying if we can handle these obstacles these are definable these are things we can actually get more clear bearings on Nibbana is very difficult to to really get a focus on because it's always bigger <laughs> but the things you can focus on he talked about the fundamentally there being kind of four four fundamental um undercurrents that capture the mind and they're they're not deliberate though we can pick them up and and uh, be deliberate about them but they're almost like reflexes they're undercurrents and if you ever you just sit quietly you notice they start to flow the first one you start to notice is some inclination towards uh, seeing touching tasting you know the the flow towards the sense world remembering it good time we had yeah mm. so that's one flow karma karmasawa 
that flow towards the senses. Doesn't mean that Buddhism destroys senses, but the pull, the habitual flow towards them creates a kind of pressure, creates a push. You can see that uh, you know, this, this particular instinct, this particular reflex is very much honed in on in the advertising world where you see amazing pictures of people always sublimely happy, attractive, well-dressed with a glass of scotch in their hands. They don't look like boozy old drunks <laughs> with rotten livers and uh, <laughs> bloodshot eyes and bad breath. They look suave, sophisticated, elegant, refined, attractive, handsome, smiling, with a glass of Johnny Walker. And even though you kind of, you know, we should know better by now, somehow the sign of that is so, hits a nerve of, wow, it would be really nice to be like that, wouldn't it? You know? So the flow towards the senses, one could become something through that sense contact and it's a, it hits beneath the conscious mind it goes to the, the reflexes works a charm obviously people are buying the stuff by the by the gallon <laughs> you know it's, it's poisonous <laughs> it's a poison it destroys your liver it drives you crazy it costs too much the cause of most crime and violence in the world is alcohol. Have another one. <laughs> yeah. So we're looking at things that are disturbing. It's just how reflex, what reflexes there are there. Second one is the reflex of uh, becoming. You know. And again, it's just, you look in the advertising world how you could become more successful, promotion, you know. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, I think there's a tremendous push towards gadgets, you know, where you could become more in touch and more sophisticated, more on the ball, more in touch with contemporary events, you know. So you're sort of a bit more clued up, you're not some hick, doesn't know what's going on, so straw-sucking hillbilly. You know, you're really with it. <laughs> but I, I've had a few of these gadgets. I can't figure out how to work the things for a start. <laughs> I decided just to be a happy hick instead. Because <laughs> whenever I do get in touch, think, what I get in touch with is just more, more mania. <laughs> you know, more people's crazy stuff. Is it really doing me any good? You know, I can now find out how crazy it is in Jakarta or... Reykjavik or Rio de Janeiro and so what, you know. <laughs> so the becoming, you know. And, uh, you know, when one is uh, uh, in early day, early years of life, teenage, you want to become something or the other. You know, you've got ambitions to become something, you know. So you get a sense of push to make sure you've got what it takes to become a uh, you know, because you don't want to become one of those. You know. So that pressure and push and anxiety. 
So very often we find, uh, you know, in teenagers, increasingly young, uh, early age, have to take medication because of the stress and anxiety around becoming something. The education, if they don't get the right grades. So, you know, like 14, 15 year old person is already getting stressed out on the becoming racetrack. It's a push forward in time that nobody ever wins. Nobody ever has become enough. Nobody's ever got to the end of it that way. But it's a very powerful current and uh, it moves there in the mind. The mind operates in it. So we, what we do is we do at least try to steer it. So at least you become calmer, you know, more, pe- more trustworthy person. You know, it's a skillful kind of becoming. And this is really, uh, you know, when, when we come to retreat, it's an opportunity to do these kinds of things to set our intentions on. The kind of becoming that's going to, you know, give us the best results, the long-term results. And then this is the process of samatha, steadying, purifying, healing, taking out the crinkles and creases, regenerating. And then from that we develop insight, which is examining whatever has become as just this. This you know, this mind state is this. It's arisen because of these causes. When I was on retreat, it was like this, you know, because of the causes and conditions that went into it. Mm-hmm. And if you've, those of you experienced retreats or you've heard retreat, retreat anecdotes, you always get the anecdote of the yogi who thinks they've become enlightened. You know, they walk out, become enlightened, then you know, five days later, crash. <laughs> because what they, they certainly had become something or something had become, but it was dependent upon the causes and conditions, the energies and the context and the, what was happening in that particular situation. So very often when we, we cultivate on retreats, we get to some, hopefully some agreeable states of mind. Yeah. And then, you know, Five days after retreat, you find you're kind of quarrelling again <laughs> with somebody, or getting hung up about tuna fish sandwiches, or because <laughs> if you buy into it, then you you know you, you, what happens is your your mind holds on to the results and doesn't keep generating the causes. You got to keep basically keep going to the causes, the skillful intentions, the skillful practices. And don't hang on to what you've become. <laughs> you know, just keep offering it, letting it go. You know, just that doesn't matter because that takes care of itself. You don't need to hold it; it stands up for itself. What we do need to keep focusing on, whether having a good time, bad time, whether it's a peaceful occasion, whether it's a calm situation, or whether it's chaotic, whether people are quarrelling. What are the right con- intentions? What are the right causes and conditions that I can put into this. Now, the uh, 
third main obstacle, flood or influx, is called views. Ditti. These are uh, means we take a stand on something. Views are very often ideological, political views. This political party is the best. Religious views. This religion is the best. Views about, you know, whatever nationalities. My country's the best, or the worst, or whatever it is. You know, gender views, ra- you know, ethnic ethnic views, kinds of things. Whereby, what a view does is it it means we take a stand on a particular position in this multi-manifest world, and we view everything else in that position. And as, you, as we do that, we start to lose the sense of empathy with people in different positions. And even the sense of morality goes. So when you get extreme strong religious views, then you can, you know, people, human beings, strong religious views on the nature of good and God and love will quite readily massacre other human beings of different views to maintain purity, to maintain justice, to maintain truth. This is the kind of madness it leads to. In my opinion, it's madness, my view anyway. (laughs) So with a view, what happens is we, we fixate on that and we lose the sense of relationship we lose the sense of empathy with other beings and then we also lose the sense even of virtuous conduct towards other beings. And this is something the Buddha was very strong about in his own practice, in his own communities. You know, that you always got to listen patiently to people with other views, say, well, you know, whatever your view is, may that, do, may that be for your welfare don't have to adhere to it, you don't have to fight it. But the main thing to inquire in terms of, of, of you know, what's really for people's welfare, which view is the right view, saying, does this take you out of suffering or into it? To what degree does it release you from pressure, from conflict? And he's saying, by and large, holding on to a view doesn't do that because you'll sooner or later find yourself in conflict with people or other views. Or you've got to keep rationalizing and, and you know, creating the right kind of energy to keep supporting your view. One of the most, uh, I think, one of the most uh, inspiring um, statements of the, in, in the Buddha made when I, when I came across was his description of uh, his own teaching as being like a raft. In this one sutta, he described his teaching as being first like a snake. He said, if you grasp this snake by the tail, it whips around and bites you, kills you. <laughs> if you grasp it behind the head, then you've grasped his teaching correctly. This teaching should not be used to create views and opinions with. <laughs> if you do so, that's what you, you get poisoned. You know, so we're not here to be Buddhists. <laughs> You can sort it that way. But to use Buddha Dhamma to look at our own 
insecurity, fearfulness, aggression, whatever, you know. And say, so this is for the release of that. If I release that, I'm truly following the Buddha, not if I start hanging on to Buddhist principles and attacking other people. He said, the teaching is like a raft. You get on it, takes you across the other shore. If you carry it around on your head, you're an idiot. <laughs> you leave it by the river bank so somebody else can use it. So similarly, this Dhamma that I teach is purely for carrying you across the river. It's not something to hold on to as a view. In fact, the, the quote that comes to mind, he says, I do not see a single view. I do not see any view at all, the holding of which will not cause you suffering, grief, lamentation and despair. <laughs> So he says, even right views you shouldn't hold on to, let alone wrong ones. But you know in yourself, this works for me. This is leading me out. I'll be with this until something better comes along. So then it's always open, isn't it? You're not saying, I don't follow this, but I'm following it, but without this sense of fundamentalist attachment to it. This to me is really uh, beautiful expression of a of a of a complete wise human being so we can look at these things our tendencies to form uh, views around issues topics and so forth and how brutal we can get to people who disagree with us the fourth is ignorance ignorance sounds like a like a put-down, you know, you're an ignorant idiot. But it means, you can see it in two ways. One it means not being in touch. Awija means just plainly either not seeing or not, not getting it. And vijja, the root vijja means both seeing and it's also related to feeling, vedana. So avidya. Vid is both seeing and also it's connected to Vedana feeling. So it's the seeing of feeling. It's a f you know, so it's not just a, an intellectual understanding. It's a felt depth of really getting it. You know, so there's a lot of ways in which intelligent people can be really ignorant. You know? We don't get the feel of what's going on. We don't get the meaning of it. And the, uh, so this current of avidya being out of touch. And as I was saying earlier today, one of the, one of the fundamental ways in which that manifests, comes down the line at us, is this disconnection. Uh, like a breaking up of wholeness. It means we, are, we see things through our head, we don't see it through our heart. You know, we lose compassion, we lose empathy. We get things 2020 in terms of object definition, but we don't get an empathic connection. You know, like the scientific experiments where you put some creature under, a, under a <laughs> electrodes and you know, frighten the life out of the thing or 
fry its brains out. It's a very interesting, you know, note, make a note of that, you know, how much it screamed. <laughs> you, know, you know, that's ignorance, isn't it? We're not really getting it. And, uh, you know, because our attention has been wrongly applied or not completely applied, you know, see through your eyes, see through your head, feel it with your heart. And being, you know, recognized in being a sense of your own presence, your own bodily presence. It's very backs up that so that our heart is actually balanced. We know what it feels like to be here, to be embodied. You see this in yourself, you see it in other beings, you see it in the lizards or the beetles or the birds around. You, you get this sense of resonance with all creatures, all sentient creatures, all formed, fleshed beings, such as this one. You know, when you come into your own embodiment, you, it's like, it's like uh, the mist clears. How could you see uh, a tree as just a lump of wood. <laughs> you kind of see the vitality and the life of things. And perhaps most deeply, how can you regard yourself as a solid thing? How could you regard it as as you know, in the way we do regard it as an identity. How could you regard this body as an identity? How could you regard these mind states as an identity? You know, they're obviously nature, forms, energies, intentions that we can have some say in, we can direct, yet fundamentally are not our own. And how can we ignore, not be in touch with these Four Noble Truths, which are perhaps the most important thing in our lives. How can we get missed the point of what, what, what's, where's the pressure, where's the holding on, where's the release from that? You, know, you can see that most of the time people are just trying to have more, push more, grab more, defend more, hold more, actually they're interested in generating more suffering or more dukkha, feeling that that would take them out of it. You know, get more, push more, hold more will be to my advantage. And what is it doing? You can feel the pressure, the push right there. This is so. This is uh, it's amazing. This avijja. Uh, uh, when we realize, you know, you have we have a planet of so many billions of people, and the majority of them are in need and in, uh, in you know physical need, and uh, you know societies by and large are quite 
you know, not really sh sharing very well. This is a wija, because self self-interest. So these are the kind of currents that that uh, keep affecting the mind. And when you come down to it, the fundamental source of of or you can always put your finger on the experience of the generate the how suffering is generated how it feels and it's this holding, pushing, hardening up around something. And it becomes a, a reflex that we often have little say over. Find yourself tightening up around time. Don't bother me, it's my time around space. This is my bit. Yeah. Because this, re however much we may disapprove of it, that actually is not adequate because this is not a decision, it's a reflex. You have to patiently acknowledge and find the ways out of this confusion, this grasping. That's our fundamental practice because you can't, you know, you may understand it intellectually, just coming out of it is quite a dealing with a lot of instincts and reflexes, a lot of fundamental attitudes. So, our practice, the first practices we do is establishing this right intention. First of all, to get a reasonable way of, of you know, having wija, clarity, not just clarity, but being in touch with what's really going on rather than awija, rather than going up into our heads and judging and forming opinions about things, actually experiencing ourselves in a more empathic, full-bodied way. So we're getting the receptors getting clear. And maybe the daylight today, you begin to realize, yeah, this you know, it needs some needs some work. <laughs> you know, just to stay awake, to not get trapped in a thought, to not follow streams of thought, just to, just to stay there. And really, the the main thing it to, to to recognize is that this process of clarification uh, is is very fundamental, but also very natural. That is the the beautiful thing about. Uh, this uh, presentation is that awija, ignorance, is conditioned in. In other words, it's not actually the fundamental truth. It's not we're basically ignorant. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's the truth of the matter. Say so we are conditioned into it through, through suffering itself. That is, when we experience suffering, something just tightens up and we get panicky, or we get fearful, or we get greedy, or we get opinionated, or we start to defend, or we start to blame somebody, that kind of tightening up and fluster and bluster, that's ignorance. That's what it does, <laughs> you know. So you know, it's conditioned by this experience of stress. So whenever we get pushed or pinched or put on an edge, then that's a, that's the condition for the arising of dukkha, and that, that no, that's the condition for the arising of ignorance. So ignorance and suffering go together. Yeah. But that isn't the ultimate truth. 
why the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths, why he taught suffering or dukkha, because ignorance isn't something you can be clear about. Otherwise it wouldn't be ignorant, would it? <laughs> you can't see ignorance because ignorance is that where one is reactive, not clear, not in touch. What you can see, what you can experience is dukkha, pressure, push, bluster, heat, panic, anxiety, opinions, blaming, criticizing, blaming yourself, blaming others. You, know, you can experience that. And then why the Buddha says, hey, this is the bit really to get in touch with is that that very place of reactivity is the place where you, instead of following it, uh, this is this widening, softening, loosening, steadying, getting bigger than that, letting it go. So it's not more, we don't need more information to clear ignorance. It's not about getting more ideas. It's about changing a reflex. And the reflex is right at that place where we, where we experience dukkha. And dukkha, as I'm using the word in Pali because suffering is just inadequate for this. It's the sense of where we get pinched, where we get blustering, where we get hard, where we get tight, where we get small, where we get me <laughs> and you, <laughs> where we get dualistic, where we cut conflict, you know, it happens for all of us all the time, I'm sure. Yeah. That's the place you ah, oh, this is really useful. This is the this is the sign, this is the flag saying, Hey, look here. Yeah. Look here, look what's buried under this one, you know. So there's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, we take the precepts and we abide in moral behavior to, to be, we'll be responsible for that in ourselves. We'll contain that. But really you want to go into that. Feel that nerve, that jumpy nerve. Pay attention. Stabilize, steady, soften, and widen. Soften your attitude, soften your slow down and widen. This is, this, is kind of, this is just a very simple mantra I'm offering. Because it's exactly what dukkha doesn't do. Dukkha hardens, tightens and speeds you up. Dukkha buries you, flattens you, puts pressure on you. Clinging, attachment, grasps, tightens. So because of that, as we experience that, you experience that portion. Uh, just pause. Just, just soften. And soften means things like take your time, no hurry. Soften means things like just be careful about that opinion. Let's just take a look at that more clearly. Do you really need that one? Instead of being so sharp and clear, can I just be more fuzzy and open? And hmm. Instead of jumping in a conclusion and answer, instead of pigeonholing myself or other people, could I just be a little bit more, well, it depends. Hmm. Softening, widening, sense of other people have got different views. It depends how you see it.
And this really does change, change the world. Because we begin to recognize in this apparent uh, um, letting go of our nice firm positions and our rightness, we feel better. <laughs> you know, there's room. There's room for five different opinions. And we say, well, right now, which, which opinion is going to be the one that takes us to a happiest conclusion at this particular time? Which viewpoint works at this particular time? A lot of uh, Buddha Dharma is just about presenting different ways of looking at the world. So, you know, you can look at a body as just uh, meat, flesh, sinews, blood, food. You can look at it like that. And that view helps you to repel the sense of fascination with the sensory appearance of it. You can look at it, you can experience it as warmth, pressure, elements. This helps to take you out of the personality view of it all, either yourself or other people. It's just this, it's just the shape. You can experience the body as a source of brightness, ease and comfort and stability you know, when you're doing breathing in and out, which is the truth. They're all true. Depends which truth you want right now. Which one helps to take you out of the compulsions, out of the blind spots, out of the places where we're, we're holding? Because a lot of these are actually unconscious. So we listen, you know, ply ourselves in this way. Check it out. Nothing is real. In other words, nothing you can see, hear, touch, taste, think, conceive of is a final truth doesn't mean it's you abandoned but you say well yeah and which way do you want to see this in order to bring around the best results is the body just a bunch of old meat that's rotten away or is it a beautiful temple for enlightenment either of those will do depends what you need where how you need to how you need to practice is breathing in and out for example you know is that uh air moving in and out of your nose or is it subtle energy flows it depends what works for you in terms of giving you what you need the stability the steadiness the ability to have something to keep bearing in mind to be mindful of so this helps us to uh, keep our basic sense of of perspective and what we're doing in a practice Keep looking at those places where the edges start happening, as they do in a day. As you meet an edge, how can you meet that edge of resistance or of pressure or of can't do or of got to do? Ah, soften, widen. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's like that, isn't it? your mind sets these things up 
got to be unremittingly mindful every day. Every moment of the day, unremitting mindfulness is what is required for Dhamma practice. Oh no. <laughs> Just meet that sound, that voice, that thought. Can you be mindful of that? That, that view? What it's doing to you? This is inspiring. Wonderful. If it's making you feel overwhelmed, it's not working, is it? It's the wrong raft. It's going up the wrong river. It's true. It's not true. So this gives us a tremendous uh, freedom to, within this practice, to find the places where we do what's necessary. Stability, steadiness, paying attention. The ability to continually gather around attention and intention and softening, widening, releasing the sources of suffering. As you do that, you can start to include wider and wider areas of experience. So it's progressive. So let's take a break for now and uh, five minutes to wriggle the knees around and then we'll have a sitting for half an hour. yesterday evening on page 35 if you have the book it's may I abide in well-being and if you have only the sheets it's on the sheet of paper too after the evening chanting in my 
and freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill will, in freedom from anxiety, and may they maintain well-being in themselves. May all beings be released from all suffering, and may they not be parted from the good fortune they have attained. When they act upon intention, all beings are the owners of their action and inherit its results. Their future is born from such action, companion to such action and its results will be their All actions with intention, be they skillful or harmful, of such acts they will be the And we are ending the evening with the closing homage. I think that was on page 24, if I remember right. After the, like the end of the evening puja. Is that right? Yeah, oh, I just hear page 14. <laughs> Sangha Namami. Mm-hmm.